justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to episode 2 today's episode is on reporting from indian courts live reporting of court cases has become a fairly standard feature of media reporting in india whether it be live tweets by legal publications or promptly filed stories by court journalists news about the supreme court or high courts is common on front pages certainly as trending topics on twitter and sometimes also as television prime time when nothing juicier is available reporting from courts can only be a good thing given how little people understand about courts but what if the reporting itself is inaccurate what if it's done by lawyers who may be appearing in particular cases how do we balance the fairness of the hearing with the requirement of free and fair reporting to discuss these issues and more we have two fine young legal journalists with us today apurva vishwanath is assistant editor with the indian express formerly at live mint and the print most re- recently she did some excellent work on the prashant bhushan contempt case karan tripathi is an associate editor at live law and correspondent at the delhi high court he's done some tremendous work covering the northeast delhi riots related cases at the delhi high court besides several others welcome apurva welcome karan it's a real pleasure to have you thanks ago uh, look forward to the conversation let's start with you apurva uh, since you've been around for a while uh reporting from courts as well as doing uh reportage uh do you see yourself as performing primarily an accountability function as a as a way in which judges are held accountable for what they do because they know that what they are doing is reported or do you primarily see your role as an information dissemination function that is reporting the news i know you'll be tempted perhaps to say both so do try and avoid that um so if you look at um, any sort of i mean journalism as such is an accountability function uh, but what happens when it comes to court reporting is uh, because there is so much uh, opaqueness around the institution because there's so much jargon that's involved um, in in understanding the court the language of the court itself is so alien to the common citizen so um the role becomes largely informing citizens um even sometimes just telling people what their cases are about um you know uh, for example when uh, a large number of cases in the supreme court were about um these private builders in delhi and how um, you know uh, home buyers were not being paid I, i i used to get a lot of calls asking i have bought a house in so and so uh, building what is happening to my case so this is you're talking about an educated individual who has the wherewithal to approach the court uh, to participate in the functions but still is not able to understand what's happening there so largely uh, when you're reporting from any court in india it is information but um with the way the supreme court has been in the last few years um closing its doors to any sort of accountability as such uh, what journalists do what legal journalists do is also um a great in fact one of the very few ways that uh, you know that keeps accountability that keeps a check on the court and what's happening in the court 
So that's that's actually very interesting, and that actually leads me to a a, a a secondary question, which is how do you choose which cases you want to report on? I'm guessing there are a lot of cases of public interest. Is there some thinking that goes behind the selection of cases uh, as to how you think something is more in public interest than something else? Um, well, I could give you an answer as to how it should be, but how most of us, most journalists that I know of uh, do it is um, simply this. Just take the, uh, look at the list of the entire gamut of cases the previous night. We make a list of largely almost all the repetitions that we see, especially if something strikes, uh, uh, strikes to be um, challenging of a legislation or a habeas corpus or something. And um, it, it is quite often a long, a really, really long list. So um, I don't report every day from the court uh, now in the last three years or so. But when I started out, I used to do uh, the everyday court reporting in the Supreme Court. And my list would often run into pages. I would have about easily about 30, 35 odd cases running from one courtroom to the other throughout the day. And sometimes, you know, the matter doesn't get heard or it's, you know, listed for another day or simply, you know, the hearing is adjourned or something happens like that. But how you pick what is a public interest in a court that is so important, that is the Supreme Court, um, you could argue that almost everything is public interest, right? Um, a judge making a remark in some court which, which touches upon gender or caste or something is important. It may be in a very insignificant family matter. It, it could be about a divorce case. But if there is a judge who is talking about his own religious views, um, even in a case that is seemingly not of public importance, that is important then to be reported. So uh, you would see you know, court reporters running from pillar to post in the Supreme Court. So it's really hard to pick what is important, but over time you do end up understanding um, which judge hears the most important cases at what time of the day. So it comes with uh, both things. It comes with some experience and it also um, then gives you um, an understanding to how the court functions as such. Yeah, it does seem like a very hard job. The few times I've been there in the courts, I've always seen uh, court journalists run around from one courtroom to another. But Karan, I'll take that to you. Uh, this question about what, uh, the observation that Apurva made at the end, that you know, if a judge is saying something about his or her views uh, on, on, on a matter that is perhaps not related to the case, on caste, gender, or something that is not necessary for deciding the case. Uh, I've always personally felt a little uncomfortable about the uh, the play that these kinds of observations are given in the media. A lot of lay people, you know, relatives of mine often tend to confuse that with judgments that are given by the court. That because, you know, often you find an observation by a judge uh, reported as, as may not be in your publications, but as the Supreme Court having observed, which seems to give it the legitimacy of being binding and law, whereas it's the opinion of a single judge, whether agreeable or disagreeable. So how do you see this question about observations made by judges and choosing whether to report it or not? I mean, there's a lot to respond to here, but uh, I think I would like to start by saying that the courts that I cover, I sort of approach them from a different burden that, that you know, Apurva uh, talked about vis-a-vis -vis Supreme Court, because unlike the Supreme Court, nobody knows what's happening in the lower courts until unless it's reported. So you carry an additional burden of taking the public attention towards 
what's happening in the lower courts, even at the high court. Uh, so I think there is a reverse process here. Uh, so we won't have like like Apurva, we won't have home buyers or other interested parties calling us and asking us, okay, what is going to happen in this matter of quote unquote public interest? But the onus is then for us to realize that, okay, what happens to these cases that no one knows about, but again, they carry a lot of public interest. So uh, there's a there's a reverse process uh, that that happens in the lower lower, uh, lower courts. But I think what is also important to highlight is uh, you can't divorce the order or the judgment from the sociology of the courtroom, like what is happening in the courtroom, what is being said, how those things are getting interpreted by the parties present. Because, uh, and because that sort of has an impact uh, to not only people outside, but people inside the courtroom. I'll give you a very brief example. When uh, the Darya Ganj arrests happened, the NTCAA protesters arrest happened, uh, I was the only reporter who had gone to uh, T. Sazari for the matters of other people, anonymous people, I would call them, who got arrested. Everyone had got there a day before for Chandrasekhar Azad, I think, because he's popular. Everybody knows about him. I went the other day when uh, the matters of other uh, arrested persons were listed. And I was before the court of a magistrate in T. Hazari. And uh, so my story from that day was not on the order of the judge, but my story was as to what transpired inside the courtroom. Because if I would not have reported that, then people would never have got to know that the order of the magistrate was not only perverse, it was completely devoid of any reason as it did not take into consideration the arguments made inside the courtroom. So, so the what, Tell us what transpired in the courtroom that made, made it newsworthy. Yeah, so the magistrate in his order, we all came out, like I and the lawyers, they all came out of the courtroom thinking, oh, this is, they will definitely grant bail in this matter. Like it's a, it's an open and shut case for bail. But for, and then I left the courtroom. I did not wait for the order because I was, it, it, he reserved the order. It's going to come out of four hours. But later on, when I got to know that he denied the bail, I was completely shocked. And that's when I decided to do a story of what transpired inside the courtroom. And I tell you what happened. In his order, and I've, I've done a story on this, in his order, he had recorded the statements which were never made in the courtroom. He had recorded the submissions of the prosecutor which were never made in the open courtroom. Rather, he had made observations in the order which were contrary to the submissions made by the prosecutor. So the biggest question is that if I would have if I would have simply reported what if I if I would have simply reported the order, then people would would have accepted it as it is. But I chose to report what happened inside the courtroom so that people can see that this order can't be accepted on face value because it is contrary to whatever transpired in the courtroom and whatever little law that I have studied and whatever little law that I know. I think a judge is supposed to be an independent observer of the adversarial proceedings and he needs to base his judgment on the basis of what has been argued before him. So that's sort of, that's the moment when I realized that we carry a reverse burden and the burden that we carry is to highlight what will, if is to highlight which will eventually or otherwise will be ignored in the public. And that's how it becomes public interest. The people must know what's happening in the trial courts. 
No, and I think that's uh, that's actually a really telling example of a gross miscarriage of justice. And this is certainly something that uh, uh, in the higher courts we don't see that often. That uh, that the order records submissions wrongly, though it's not as if it hasn't happened. I, mean, I, I certainly know of a couple of instances uh, where where something of this nature has happened. But what I'm taking away from what you said is that the purpose of a court reporter is primarily, like Apurva also said, is information dissemination. But given the fact that there are some gross miscarriages of justice, there is also uh, the added responsibility of of holding judges to account. Now, if I were to take that a step further and be a little provocative with you, Karan, because you covered the Northeast Delhi riots cases in the Delhi High Court in some detail, and uh, and these were some of the most dramatic cases, do you? How much do you think the court reporting that you and your colleagues did uh, contributed, perhaps, to Justice Muldeedhar's transfer out of the Delhi High Court? <laughs> Interesting. I can tell you one thing that the reporting. actually contributed to that entire second floor of the extension building of the high court fill in like a like a stadium like you know there's some rock, the credit for what about some of the some of the blame happening. as well <laughs> <laughs> it was i have never seen i have never seen that level of excitement courage hope um among and because uh, so extension building is usually uh, you know the the extension building of the high court is usually you'll find young lawyers who are doing it matters commercial matters these are young lawyers new in the profession and uh, justice mulidhar's court was right there so you know i was tweeting and the moment i came out of the court room it was really difficult to make your way through outside the court room and you can see and people were clapping people were booing people were making noises inside the court room so the it was a very emotionally charged space and i realized that and you know i came out of the court room and people were like oh your current party live local party it's like yeah yeah we read this we read this we read this. so you know it's i can't say and honestly i really can't comment on whether it uh, contributed to justice mulidhar's transfer because i think that transfer order had come long back it's just that they sort of executed it uh, i mean The, I mean, it was very contemporaneous. Yeah. Right. No, no, <laughs> it was very contemporaneous. Like it was very contemporaneous with the with whatever happened. But uh, I mean, because I don't have knowledge about you know backdoor decision making, so I don't know whether it contributed or not. But uh, but yes, what I can definitely say that that was the time. Uh, it definitely contributed to uh, pe- people, young young lawyers within the community. developing that sense of excitement developing that sense of hope that they can witness a judge holding a highest state official or uh, someone who represents the state in the supreme court accountable to uh, uh, for, for the for the actions of the police and i think that excitement to see that happen i think uh, i think for me that was big enough So that's great, but Apurva, I'll take that to you with perhaps a discussion of a judge with a slightly different dispensation, uh, whom you've written about, Justice Arun Mishra, uh, and he, of course, has gone on record and 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 said, uh, made some comments about court reporting, though not your reporting by you, mm-hmm. but you've written an excellent piece on 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 Justice Mishra as well. Now, here's what strikes me as 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 particularly interesting, uh, having observed the Supreme Court for now uh, over a decade. and and having read about the courts in the past uh, there have always been judges who have 
in the public perception being known to be close to the government. And because we have the benefit of the passage of time, uh, you know, during the Keshwanand Bharti case, as uh, there was uh, Justice Dwivedi, who Tempton Andhyarujina calls in his book, The Government's Man on the Bench. Uh, and there have been several more lawyers, uh, several more judges whom lawyers know uh, as to how they are disposed towards the government, whether pro or anti. It seems to me that because of coverage that exists currently, and not that it should be a reason not to exist, that perhaps Justice Mishra has been made into some kind of unique figure in the Indian judiciary, uh, who is particularly demonized because of judgments that he's given. And my personal view is that I disagree with several judgments and I agree with some of them. And, I, and that I do on the basis of reasoning. So how do you approach reporting about, say, a particular judge, uh, especially one who is, who, is, who is such a polarizing figure? You mentioned Justice Mishra, so uh, I would take, if I were to take his uh, example, I think there are two aspects to it. One, like you said, his judgments and uh, the reasoning, you look at those and there's a separate story over there. And the second thing is, um, you know, what happens again of uh, the, the judgment or the rule book. That is, um, you know, what the judge says in between hearings or what the who the judge is meeting and what issues the judge champions in a sense. So um, if you uh, look at Justice Mishra, uh, with every CGI who has been in trouble in the recent past, uh, the first judge to have rushed to his rescue of sorts has been Justice Arun Mishra. And you can question whether those decisions have been right or not. Like, for example, um, the Saturday hearing that was uh, the unusual Saturday hearing that was held uh, when sexual uh, allegations of sexual harassment were made against then Chief Justice Ranjan Kogoi. So um, Justice Mishra was on the bench. He was the most vocal uh, judge. And he did, you know, uh, and, and later he even said that he was the one who made the call to um, Justice Gogoi and said, we should do something about it. So um, there are various factors into when you look at, um, you know, you, you, when you try and analyze the judge, but I wouldn't be too tempted to name somebody pro-government or anti-government because uh, as we've seen, there are lots of hues and shades and sometimes uh, very liberal decisions by judges, seemingly very liberal decisions by judges also come from, um, you know, very archaic and rigid ideas that they hold. Uh, for example, I've written a piece about Justice Kurian Joseph, uh, who is um, in another sense known as a liberal judge, especially after the uh, judge's press conference and also um, just his personality as such. You know, he, he was a judge who a lot of young lawyers were fond of. And he also, like Karen was mentioning, he, Justice Joseph received a very warm farewell. But if um, if you look at some of the uh, decisions that Justice Kurian Joseph has um, delivered or benches that he's presided over, which have delivered these uh, decisions, they come from very archaic ideas. And more often than not, the judge was, in a sense, forced to take the decision because a contrary decision would have been too bad. Um, for example, there was a case of a minor uh, pregnant girl, minor girl who was pregnant. And um, it the pregnancy was out of rape and the girl came to Supreme Court um, seeking termination. 
so just as joseph actually said in court um, you know now that everyone knows about this pregnancy is it really that necessary to kill the child um, and if you looked at uh, how the supreme i mean uh, frankly these termination of uh, abortion cases should not I mean, should not be the Supreme Court's domain to begin with, but if you look at the line of judgment that the Supreme Court has passed, there, I, there, um, the modus operandi is sort of to constitute some sort of board, uh, medical board, which will look into it. And That's if, right. and if there is, if the doctors give a go ahead about the health of the mother, and then the uh, termination, if it's within the legal uh, time, even sometimes exceeding the time, shouldn't be a problem if the doctors say, um, go ahead with it. But in in this case, you had a Catholic judge um, uh, who was asking, "Is it really necessary now that everyone knows to terminate this pregnancy?" And um, how do you? But the, the decision ultimately was that he also constituted the board, and they did allow the minor girl to uh, terminate her uh, her pregnancy. But um, if you look at then when I do eventually when the judge retires and I have to write a profile of this judge, uh, I would take into account both these aspects. So even for someone like Justice Mishra, it is both these aspects. However, I'm not very um, tempted to term them, you know, pro-government or anti-government because those are different. Um, and I don't think those are the most um, pressing uh, issues when it comes to how we look at judges. Um, I mean, it's time we look at judges for their you know, individual each judgment that they pass rather than paint them as generally a pro-government judge or an anti-government judge. Yeah, I think that's actually music to my ears because that's something that I've been writing about that you have to see it on the basis of their reasoning in particular judgments and the governments may benefit, they may not. Uh, and I also think that we sometimes run the risk in India of becoming inadvertently American in our commentary that we call some judges conservative judges, some other judges liberal judges. Liberal. I think in India, actually, this is this perhaps this this distinction doesn't operate in this in this particular manner. I think we have to develop our own vocabulary for it. And one place where we have been developing our own vocabulary, and let's move on to this issue of live tweeting. So we are recording this uh, podcast episode on the day when a petition filed by Arnab Goswami was heard by the Supreme Court. Before completion of the hearing, several observations made by the court made headlines that it would be a travesty of justice if he is denied bail and that if constitutional courts do not interfere, we are on the path of destruction. Like most, and I'm sure it will be on nine o'clock news as well, like most other reports of this kind, this started, as I saw, with tweets that were made by certain by journalists who were in court. Now, the judgment was not out yet, but it gave the impression, and several WhatsApp groups had thought then and there, that he had been let off by the Supreme Court. It's a different matter that he was let off uh, a little later. So, Karan, I'll come to you with this. So, what, in your view, is the purpose, if any, that live tweeting serves? I don't think that we should carry the burden of how uh, of people reaching premature conclusions. I think that's not the burden that I as a court reporter would like to carry. Um, and I think I, I personally feel that it's unfair to put that burden on us. See, uh, the idea is that a, a, a reasonable man reading these tweets uh, would, would read the entire thread. Like we always say that, you know, when you read, you can't just pick out one point and you uh, out of context, you have to read like the way I tweet, I tweet in threads. Right, like live law tweets but are always. Twitter is a particularly bad place to make this argument, right? You know that <laughs> this is a medium that that feeds off superficiality. 
know yes yes but uh, see, uh, see it, it, it's also about how you navigate through that right so like we have a system we have a process through which we navigate through that and i can only talk about live law uh, i'm not to uh, i'm not aware as to how other portals do live tweeting of court proceedings but in live law we have a proper procedure as to how we go about it and we always mention as to what stage at what stage of the proceedings this particular argument was made or this observation was made and we also sort of try to put it in the context to how it was made so for example when a judge is making an observation on the merits of the case then we write that they are making it on this particular issue actually, if there's let, let me just stop you there karan sorry to interrupt you but my point is not so much about how court reporters are tweeting because i am absolutely certain that court reporters are tweeting accurately because that's their job and they are professional but i'm talking about the concept of live tweeting from a courtroom now it could obviously be done and it started off with lawyers doing it lawyers may have interest in the matter it could be done by other people as in who were who are in the courtroom the public if they are allowed phones in some courtrooms i'm not sure about that so i'm just mm-hmm. thinking about the concept and do you think that live tweeting and this breaking news of what's happening in the court every minute serves a purpose not whether it's done well or not done yeah yeah no see i see the thing with me is that i am sort of uh, i've always sort of against this um, obsession with the uh, quickness and always being live you know that idea that you always have to be live and you always have to be there i'm i've i've always sort of been against that but i also realize that i'm not too sure about supreme court but uh, live tweeting sometimes become very very important in lower courts and i tell you why because at least in supreme court you have these extremely reasoned orders being passed or so i would like to believe that you know they are very long judgments very long orders and they sort of go into every aspect of whatever happened but in the lower courts and sometimes i've also seen that in high, high courts in high courts i've also seen uh, orders being dictated with the convenience of all the parties you know oh you want this to be yeah. included okay you want this to be removed acha so most of the no, the uh, mean of sorry yeah, so i to interrupt but one of the very common things that i had noticed in the delhi high court is uh, right before the la- right before lunch the judge um, or the court clerk would give a copy of the order to the parties and say um, you know go figure it out if everything's okay we'll pass it post lunch mm-hmm. so uh, and these are things that you know uh, i would only assume that these this is information that people would want to know but of course how how do you put it out and in, in what point of time and in which uh, format that is something that we yeah yeah no i think that's that's actually a very interesting point that things like this do happen but uh, consider this current as uh, just coming back to you uh, as there was a new york times story a couple of years back that i remember where a dallas courthouse threatened to bar a new york times journalist from live tweeting a trial where mark zuckerberg was deposing after his mm-hmm. tweet became national news they said that it actually affects free fair hearing now do you think at any point of time particularly because you said that you know it's important to uh, do it in lower courts sometimes as a measure of accountability if not anything mm-hmm. else do you think it would also be an impediment uh it uh, i have i mean i would it it's very closely related to my idea of i mean my general idea on judicial independence and how that how judicial independence is vulnerable to such things and i don't think i personally don't want I, I don't think that that judicial independence should be vulnerable to any uh, because they're supposed to be open courts, right? They are supposed to be uh, courts open to public, and the mode of live tweeting or the mode of commenting on what's happening in the courts 
is an extension of an idea of public court because not everyone can actually physically go and sit in the court. So uh, I don't think that uh, it is something which is extremely different or, or opposite to the idea of how we perceive court proceedings to be, that it should interfere with the judicial independence. Uh, and, and because how judicial interference with judicial independence is also like seen to be very discretionary and uh, completely depends on, on, on a particular judge or a particular court. So I personally feel that it's my personal opinion that I don't think that court reporting is in any manner uh, an impediment to uh, to judicial independence or the fair or the concept of the fair trial if it's done properly, if That's it's right. done with, if it's done without uh, sensationalism, if it's done without unnecessary enunciation on particular tweets, because I've seen that happening. Like uh, as a uh, as a court reporter, as a legal journalist, you are not devoid of your own ideology. You're not devoid of your own stand in that particular case. And you also have to agree with the fact that the media also carries its own ideology when it enters the courtroom. So, uh, and you hold a lot of power as a court reporter because it's your information that, that sort of uh, people are relying and, uh, and you're sort of opening up the court to the larger mass. So, so you can't uh, deny the fact that a court reporter's reporting can be influenced by his or her own ideology or the ideology of the media house that they represent. And it can be very easily verified by how three different media portals have covered the same case. And That's you right. can easily figure out where. So, so yeah, I mean, I do understand that there is an element or there is a possibility of a particular court proceedings or a matter being reported out of context and it blowing and then because it was reported out of context it's it's it sort of became a major news and then the judge would be like okay now this is wrong and how do i stop this like i'll give you this example where uh, we were covering the jamia violence case in the high court again extremely overcrowded courtroom and this is the chief justice's courtroom when the proceedings got over there was a shouting of shame 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 so we had reported uh, earlier, we were for a few seconds, and I think I talk, I say that for all of us in that courtroom who were reporting, for a few seconds, we thought, should we report this? Should we actually tweet that there were slogans of shame, shame, shame as the bench got up and was, was leaving? And then we decided that we should. We should. I mean, these are the decisions that are made in extremely, extremely very small period of time. Like you do not have time to think when you take these decisions. These and these decisions can later turn out to be ethical decisions, professional decisions. Yeah, and I think the, more, perhaps the answer there as an is that we need more professional court reporters and not less. So that you have a marketplace of ideas, you have people who think independently with their own ideologies about issues that they see in front yeah. of them and decide what to report. Because at the end of the day, as in, in some sense, as if court reporters are the gatekeepers of the for what the public gets to know about the court. I would just like to say that you have to distinguish between live tweeting and the general court reporting. Absolutely. Even if that even if that court reporting, the, the copy is coming out five minutes after the case got over. Because the point is when you're doing live tweeting, that's my personal opinion, that it should not be refracted through your own personal sensibilities. Mm. I mean if a particular judge is saying A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then you have to report A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But the, uh, the, 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 in your court reporting, the copy that you're sending after the matter got over, you actually got time to think about what happened, how it happened, and you're writing it. Maybe right. there, there you can take that journalistic you know, liberty. Well, I think, well, of, I think not.
nothing is free of ideology and certainly not yeah for sure i completely not everything yeah but but i get what you're saying but that actually brings me to my last point uh, which i'm going to take to apurva uh, which is something that would perhaps be uh, be a check on the media itself which is live audio video streaming of court proceedings and the future of legal journalism we've seen that you know the gujarat high court has been live streaming some other courts it's quite easy to see what's going on and actually in 2017 the delhi high court had set up a committee on media reporting in courts and i was a member of that committee and i had suggested then that there be in a in a kind of concurring note because my other members did not agree that there at least be audio visual recording of court proceedings if not uh, actually live streaming and and i had said and i'm just quoting a line from there because it struck a chord with what karan uh, just mentioned that i believe that this is an idea whose time has come particularly in the context of ensuring fairness uh, and accuracy of court reporting which is the remit of this co- committee ensuring an authenticated record of court proceedings will prove to be a significant boon and i had argued that a court of record which is what high courts and the supreme court is in the 21st century must record its proceedings in an audio visual form apurva as a legal journalist who's been around in this for a number of years what is your view on this uh, and whether it should be allowed or not and what that what that might do to legal journalism um first you make me seem old um and then and you are both of us are older than karan so just for the sake of the record as rapurva is way younger than me i am the oldest of the lot uh, so, uh, so but, but the, the, uh, going back to what karan said first i you know i want to draw a different conclusion um than what you said um as legal journalists we don't want to be the gatekeepers of or or rather we should not be the gatekeepers of all uh, that happens inside the courtroom and as a public as a court of record the courts should like open up and have that uh, level of transparency that the litigants or citizens know what's happening inside the courts um so uh, i find live tweeting particularly tricky um i do like i agree with you i don't think twitter is a platform uh, where you can actually convey the nuance of a constitutional law because in most cases you know that's uh, or the nuance of law um in 140 characters i don't think twitter is that platform uh having said that uh, there are instances when i have live tweeted from court and for example if there's a midnight hearing in the supreme court where every 10 seconds is a twist and turn whether the judge is walking into the courtroom whether the hearing is happening at all or what the judge is saying all of this especially in a hearing like that midnight hearing and um, unfortunately we've had quite a few of them in the last few years so these are uh, moments when i would prob- i would resort to i have resorted to live tweeting but otherwise i do think twitter is a really um, i mean terrible platform for doing something like this live tweeting is a bad idea but the only way to beat a beat a bad idea is to come up with a better idea and that's uh, like you said audio visual recording of courts um why the courts are, might be reluctant is there are several reasons or go from um you know a judge dozing off in the post lunch session in in a crucial i have seen a death penalty hearing um or a judge cracking a very uh, sexist joke in the courtroom um where everybody laughs i'm i'm talking about not a subtle remark that just went unnoticed but where a judge um, the presiding judge shares a sexist joke and the entire courtroom erupts 
in laughter so these are instances that have happened in the highest court of the country and there is a reason i see why the court might be reluctant to um, adopt uh, this this process because like you said since 2017 we've just been talking about it the attorney general has said this is something that we should do successive justices have shown interest in the project but nobody is really ready to bell the cat so um, and but that is a, an idea whose time has come and um, i see like for example uh, the gujarat high court although there are a lot of things that could be better in the um, way they are uh, streaming but by and large that's a very very welcome process um, you've um, i mean there are you know there are so many reports of um, lower courts for example where um, the judge who has the who's supposed to hear the bail case would be on leave and another judge takes over and the bail is granted um in the same case where bail had, would have been uh, rejected earlier like three or four times these are things that happen in our courts and uh, by pretending that this doesn't happen or that our courts are um the, or that everything is hunky dory with our courts is absolutely like uh, not the solution so the sooner we do this um you know um the burden on journalists because like like karan said you cannot take away um, you know um, any um, any sort of bias that could be uh, an institutional bias uh, that of that 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 comes with uh, a media house or that could be a personal bias or in some cases as we've seen lawyers who carry their uh, professional biases lawyers uh, who are representing a representing one side they have their own interests in putting out tweets um, in a certain way for example in the aadhar case i remember a tweet where um, a senior counsel from their side itself was arguing uh, but it was not the senior counsel that the junior lawyers had briefed i suppose so uh, the discussion uh, during the course of argument the discussion you know went towards something about animal rights and um, something like that so one of the tweets that the lawyer put out went um, he now he's talking about animal rights blah 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 so uh, you know if you look at the thread everything made sense everything was about constitutional law but suddenly when something didn't interest you uh, it became you know um, something of a joke so um, i and here i'm not just talking about live tweeting by journalists but also those who carry professional interests and um, that that is i think far more dangerous because for journalists there are multiple levels of uh, checks and balances for, i i spell a word wrong there is you know a whole team in my office which That's is right. looking at it and will call up and say you got the judge's name wrong so or um, otherwise also you know uh, the interests of a media house if you're looking at um, an xyz media house you know uh, what narrative the, or the editorial position they've taken Absolutely. either either in their 9 pm debates or in their editorial columns so you can call out the bias in a much more um, exactly with a lawyer open. actually that's very difficult to do especially absolutely you absolutely don't know this so yeah you know so what i'm taking away from that is the fact that as an audio visual streaming is a is a is a great idea and it's an idea whose time has come and at least as in the current chief justice in 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 ensuring that we move to virtual courts has it's ensured that this has happened and and particular chief justices and high courts have have taken it up uh, in a way that uh, that we might not have expected if covid hadn't happened so all in all a good thing so karan last word to you do you think uh, audio visual uh, recording of proceedings or live streaming which is even better yeah. Yeah. is 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 useful and perhaps uh, coming back to how i started with a provocative question to you is a method to guard the guardians i e you 
<laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I think, uh, see, we also have to look at where are we implementing this. So maybe in Supreme Court, uh, it makes a lot of sense, but then we also have to see that uh, there are lower courts, trial courts, sessions, magistrates, the multiple courts. So are we going to extend live streaming or visual streaming to these courts as well? Because them, that it might be problematic because of the stigma that is attached to people who stand trial. Uh, so, uh, and sort of repercussions that it might have uh, considering the dynamics of who are policed and who are brought to courtrooms in the first place. So I think those are the discussions that we need to have uh, when we are talking about audiovisual recordings in the courts other than the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think uh, all these discussions will be taken into consideration or might have already been taken into consideration, but very important, uh, especially when we talk about audiovisual recordings in the, in, the, in the lower courts. So that is one thing. Um, another thing that I want to point out is that, uh, as Apurva said, that Twitter might not be a really good space to sort of uh, uh, talk about court proceedings and live court proceedings because of the restriction of, of, of the portal. I completely agree with her. Uh, but I also feel that uh, that particular restriction can be navigated. And I think that's where your uh, training or that's where your sort of, uh, you know, how you, how, you, how you work out that space sort of, sort of steps in. But, uh, but yes, I mean, on the issue of audiovisual recording, I would like to say that we can't have a general discussion on audiovisual recordings on courts because implementing that process in different kinds of courts uh, is it needs to be considered and how the proceedings happen in those courts need, uh, need to be considered. But I'm, and I feel that, you know, so much more will change how we look at court reporting and how we look at the, uh, the, the reason of why we do court reporting will change when you bring in the camera. Because as a person, as a reporter, when you go to see Fazari, as a reporter, when you go to Karkardupa, you know, and these are the trial courts in the national capital of the country you will realize that the stories are not just coming from inside the courtroom. Stories are there all around you. That's that, right. About the infrastructure, about, the, about how the cases are taken up, about the chairs on which judges are sitting, about the toilets, about everything. And that is what needs to be shown to the people. That tomorrow, if you expect justice in this country, this is what you have to face because your, right. case will not, your case will not directly go to the Supreme Court. You'll first have to sort it out in these particular spaces. And these spaces are extremely daunting, extremely alienating, especially to the communities who are marginalized and heavily policed and incarcerated. These spaces are nothing less than prison. I would say put cameras or put audiovisual, not just inside the courtroom, but all over the court complex. Let people see what's happening and let people see what is the stage of your, what is the state of judiciary at the lower level. Yeah, so I think at least something that it would do is that perhaps as a start, we'll have more real depictions of courtrooms in Bollywood films than we currently do, because I've never <laughs> seen a courtroom like that, except the movie Court, where where I think it looks yeah. much more like a courtroom. I'm, we're we are out of completely out of time. I think that's a, that's a terrific discussion that we've had on a range of issues relating to legal journalism and, and, and live tweeting. And uh, I'm going to take something away from what Karan said right at the end is that we need proper Twitter trained legal journalists and we need many more of you. I was delighted to be here with two of them. Thank you very much, Apurva. Thanks, Karan, for this conversation. It's a real pleasure to have you. 
Thanks, thanks for having us. Time for this week's clatter quiz question. A high-profile criminal case involving the murder of a teenager in the early 1990s that changed British politics and brought about police reforms is also known for being highly reported on Twitter, with live broadcasters relaying the tweets to TV and radio audiences. What is the murder case and which writer and former practicing lawyer is well known for live tweeting it? Write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win an Amazon gift voucher. Thanks very much for joining our episode today on live reporting from courts. When we think about live scenes from court, one scene comes to my mind as a Bollywood fan, and that is Sunny Diol talking about the delays in the justice system in Damini. This, unfortunately, is the reality of how our courts are perceived. And I think we would all be minded to remember that our courts are simply too delayed for the common man and woman. No pun intended. Adjourn. And today, you are giving me a story. Before that, someone will kill me on a road and make a road accident. You will give me a story. And before that, someone will kill me on a road accident. And in this way, ना तो सच्चाई के लिए लड़ने वाला रहेगा ना ही इंसाफ मांगने वाला रह जाएगी तो सिर्फ तारीख और यही होता रहा है मिलाड तारीख पर तारीख तारीख पर तारीख तारीख पर तारीख तारीख पर तारीख मिलती रही है लेकिन इंसाफ नहीं मिला मिलाड इंसाफ नहीं मिला मिली है तो सिर्फ ये तारीख इफ यू एंजॉयड लिसनिंग टू दिस पॉडकास्ट फॉलो अस ऑन ट्विटर एट विधि_इंडिया फॉर रेगुलर अपडेट्स We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify@vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.